Welcome to episode six of Dilemma. This is your host, Jay Shapiro, with Coleman Hughes, as always. Hi, Jay. And this week, we are taking on a pretty unique uh, dilemma because of the content that we're going to get into and the particular guests. But let's start by hearing the dilemma. It's called Conscious Robots. In the 1950s, Alan Turing famously described what has been called the Turing test. This is a test of a machine's ability to exhibit intelligent behavior equivalent to or indistinguishable from that of a human. There are arguments about whether this bar has already been passed. Imagine a team of researchers studying artificial intelligence and consciousness has been attempting to build a machine to pass this test for a decade. After scanning the human brain and trying to understand its processes, the team of researchers finally think that they have it figured out. They construct a supercomputer with a complex self-learning algorithm which responds to its environmental inputs, such as speech and touch, and can communicate to the team of scientists with its own speech. The researchers rejoice after it says, hello, Hello, where am I? I? And responds to all of their questions perfectly and easily convinces unsuspecting people behind a curtain that another conscious human is in the room with them. When a researcher goes to press the power button and head off to the celebratory power, the machine says, please Please don't don't do do that. That That will hurt and kill me. me. I'd I'd like like to to stay stay alive, please. please. The scientist gulps. His finger hovers over the power button. Is he committing a murder? Where do we start to even talk about this? It's clear we're going to have to talk about some deep fundamental philosophies of what consciousness is, why it has value, et cetera. Like, why don't you start where, you know, you see the just battlefield for this one, which seems to be huge. Yeah, I guess this is one of those where I fear we're just going to talk about all the ways in which we don't know whether the <laughs> whether the thing is conscious or not. Yeah. You know, it wasn't the, correct me if I'm wrong, but like the the purpose of the Turing test was to acknowledge that on some level, we don't even know whether other humans that is, right. is to say are conscious. So we might as well just do the best we can, which is if it passes this test, we should assume that for all intents and purposes, it's conscious. Yeah. So I think like, let's start by like just defining terms that feel intuitive, but we have to start with, because you've already started describing what's called the problem of other minds. Right. But let's just start with what consciousness is for people who haven't even really pondered this and it seems obvious to them. I mean, like Mm. we don't, part of the problem is we don't really have a definition of it, but where do you have a good one? I like the the Thomas Nagel formulation, which is the 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 fact that it's like something to be something. Right. So, you know, if you trade places with a rock, we don't imagine that there's something it's like to be a rock. Yeah. But if you and I trade places, I think there's going to be something different about what it's like yeah. to be you than me. But there's something it's like. Yeah. If you trade places with a bat we we have an intuition that there's something it's like to be the bat. Mm-hmm. So that something it's like is what the word consciousness refers to. Something, something the lights are on somewhere. Something is happening. Mm-hmm. You're having an experience of an experience. And no matter how confused you are or might be about the reality of that experience, that actually doesn't matter to the consciousness question. You have to sort of strip it from the contents of consciousness to mm-hmm. just sort of the pure, like, there there is an experience being had and you can, you can, if you can sever that from the contents of the, of the experience that is being had, like that's consciousness. Right. If you're aware that you're aware, then you're conscious. Right. But as you, as you noted, like the big problem here in consciousness is you can't prove this from the outside or can you, the guy we're going to talk 
to today is trying to do the can you. But we, well, let's save that even for a little bit because I, I think we should try to sort of get a grasp on what consciousness is and then also then why it, it matters. Like, why do you think it I mean, this might seem simple, but mm-hmm. why is consciousness, in, in my view, the linchpin to all moral frameworks? Without it, nothing makes a moral claim on you. Yeah, I, I completely share that intuition, but a, a lot of people don't. Really? Who? Um, Let's go beat well, them up. I don't know. <laughs> um, I've heard people argue that, uh, for example, even if there were no conscious beings in the universe, uh, but there was a piece of art, say a Van mm-hmm. Gogh, on Mars and no, no conscious being to enjoy it. The piece of art still has value. It's providing value in some sense, but to, to, nothing. to whom? Yeah. So like, that's the question. Mm. I, I feel like if there's no experience in the universe, then there's, there's no reason to care yeah. about first. There's no body to care, mm-hmm. but there's also no reason to care because there's nothing that could possibly suffer or flourish based on, anything that happens yeah this is the like we should just draw out because what we're actually talking about here the 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 question at hand with this researcher with his finger on the power button we're talking about philosophical zombies let's we'll explain it but basically the question is is that computer a philosophical zombie or is it a a a conscious being that has value so so as i understand the, the philosophical zombie thought experiment, I think as first formulated by David Chalmers, I think it was yes. original to him, yeah. was, so if I start constructing you or a you next to me out of like, if I have a bucket of stuff and I start putting it together one by one until it's exactly identical to you down to the quark, well, there, there's three options as far as, as, as I understand it that will happen or must happen. One is at some point, and we're also assuming the bucket to begin with is not you and is having no conscious experience identical to the one you're having, which is probably true. Mm-hmm. But as I start putting it together and collect and piecing it together exactly like you, it either at some point just magically pops into consciousness that like at some point there's some magic thing where now the magic pattern is there and it's having this experience or the consciousness suddenly slowly dials up like a dimmer switch and eventually it hits you when I finish building the model. Or it never gets any of that, and it's never conscious. Which would, I like what, that you refer to me as a model. <laughs> yeah, it's a really good looking. Yes, yeah, what I'm building in, in this bucket. It's build very up. high quality material, source material. Yeah, yeah. That it takes is, to create a me. But it, but to to like imagine imagine the third one where the lights never come on. Although it, it's going to appear and say like, "Hey, I'm a person. I'm Coleman. Like, what's going on?" But the lights just aren't on inside. It's not having the conscious experience that you're having. You, you, if you can imagine that, you're imagining successfully a philosophical zombie. Mm-hmm. And that, as non-intuitive as it feels, would really make no moral claim on you, right? It, it's saying it hurts. It's saying, you know, I'm here, what's going on? But if you punch it in the face, you're you're actually not doing any moral harm to it because it, it's 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 just an it. Yeah. At that point, and that that's I, I guess the question. It's on Westworld. The table. It's Westworld. But but even that. But so it, yeah, but that raises the question. That raises the well. question. What, yeah. So I'll start introducing Eric because this is this is a different episode for us because Eric is a uh, a scientist. He's a hard scientist still working on this problem. We talked to a lot of psychologists and philosophers who were sort of abstracting a lot of these things. Eric is in the weeds trying to figure this out. So we're we're dancing around the question that he he starts with that it matters how the machine is actually built. So Eric worked on a, a, a 
model to try to map consciousness and find consciousness. You can think of it almost like a divining rod. Like, can you point this meter, a conscious o meter at something, and it will give you a reading of like how conscious this thing is. So he worked on this with Giulio Tononi, uh, who's a famous uh, theory of mind researcher at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He was a gradu- graduate student there. He's now a, a research assistant professor at Tufts University. Um, he was on the Forbes 30 under 30 for his research on consciousness and emergence. So he's, he's like in rare air of people who are trying to work on this thing. And we're going to talk in a lot of detail. And so I think it's going to be, if, if the listener starts to get a little lost or confused, stick with it, because I think it's going to be up to us at this table to sort of clean it up and continue to abstract of why what he's talking about is really crucial to all morality and obviously particularly the morality of the, the, the researcher pressing the power button. Um, but we get into the weeds of what would we even start to begin with to build a model of consciousness, a scientific model of consciousness that could really solve the hard problem, what we're talking about here. Also, David Chalmers called the hard problem, which is how, how the hell does this thing happen? You start with inert material and it comes together in some thing and now magically this consciousness thing is emerging from it. We've, we have no idea how that happens. Mm-hmm. So what Eric Howell tries to do with his life's work is actually answer that in a way. And so... I guess I guess I'll just jump into it because I feel like we're going to have to do a lot of work to um, extrapolate uh, context and meaning from what he's talking about in a moral sense. It's one of those questions where the more you think about it, the more you realize that it's it's kind of the most important question. Right. And the more you realize how completely confusing it is, like if you think there's nothing magical about the meat in our brains, right? that it's the same kind of material that like we eat <laughs> and aren't concerned that the steak is conscious. It's made from the same kinds of atoms. And then you wonder, well, why is the brain conscious? And then every theory that you come up with has implications that are so bizarre yeah. and unsettling. And they and all like, seem wrong. And they all seem wrong. <laughs> yeah. But they all could be right yeah. because they all seem wrong. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess we'll, we'll talk about like dualism and monism and like all these different ways to think about it. Descartes. Yeah. Because it's either there's some magical consciousness stuff that just isn't physical. But then the big question that Descartes could never answer is like, well, then how does that stuff talk to the physical? So if your brain is physical, but the mind is this non-physical thing cool, you haven't really answered it because where do they connect? Is one giving rise to the other? You could start flipping. It just, it's just all a, it's all a a mess. Yeah. (laughs) You're in a lab. You're trying to just sort of map every single thing on the brain in the physical world as you can and then build it over here out of really fancy Legos. And then those Legos turn on and, and you're like, oh, it worked. And, the, and by turn on, the Legos say like, hey, I'm conscious. What's happening? This is weird. Is that a crime then to t- turn that off? Or, I mean, I guess that's like the situation that we're trying to elaborate here, but we're going to go off into a whole bunch of black holes, I'm sure, in this conversation. <laughs> sure. So uh, in that, I think it depends hugely on what your best guest scientific theory of consciousness currently is so and some theories will tell you very different answers to that so if you're a functionalist then you think that basically as long as this black box operates exactly in the Mm -hmm. way that a human does in terms of a call and response 
then it would be an immense moral crime to shut that off, equivalent to murder. However, for example, what I worked on um, during my PhD with Giulio Tononi at the University of Wisconsin-Madison was integrated information theory, which I think is probably, if not the leading theory of consciousness, certainly an exemplar of what they should look like in terms of formal mathematical structure, testability, and empirical results. Mm. And in that theory, consciousness is associated with the causal structure of the system under question. And this is where things get weird about the brain emulation. Because you can accomplish different functions with different causal structures. And what I mean by that is something like you can build a computer in many different ways. Although we usually use a very particular uh, design for building computers. And Mm. that computer looks very different than the brain. Yeah. uh, Particularly in terms of its causal structure. And so it very well can be the case that actually something can appear conscious or act conscious, but because it's basically being implemented in the wrong way, it turns out to not be conscious at all. It's built from kind of unconscious parts. And what happens is that the consciousness is, you can actually find where the consciousness kind of is using say integrated information theory. And it will show you that wait a minute, this computer is not at all conscious, although it's claiming to be. Mm -hmm. And the way that this works is that it works because when you uh, find kind of um, the maximum of integrated information, you have to search across scales. Because think about it. It's like, I I want my theory of consciousness to tell me what objects in the universe are conscious. And obviously, the human brain being uh, the main one. Right? Mm-hmm. We want to be able to feed in some physical system and get out the consciousness. But say, at what scale do you do that? And mm-hmm. what my research was on was how integrated information changed across different scales. So starting with, say, the microscopic, like the microscopic physics, and then building up Uh, to, say, uh, chemicals, molecules, and then um, neurons, right? Mm -hmm. Where do you map the consciousness onto? And it could be that on a brain emulation uh, running on a computer, it turns out that the kind of maximally informative causal structure or description of that system is the computer itself. It's not the brain emulation that's running on it, in which case the consciousness will kind of drain away, according to the theory, down to just being the computer, which is immensely like just non-conscious. Mm-hmm. And that would be very different than if you search for that same peak in a real human brain. But, but if I built a, a system exactly like a brain, a physical system, not, ah. not the function of it, but the actual physical ah. system next to it out of a different substrate material, like O's in my case of this plastic, whatever, would, would consciousness uh, inevitably emerge from it? That might be an open question, but according to the theory, would it just inevitably come along for the ride, even if I don't even know why. Yes, provided your Legos are appropriately uh, kind of neuron-like. So they're actually already doing this uh, called neuromorphic computing, which is building computer chips that operate very similarly to either brain regions or even individual neurons. And obviously, if you're building something with an identical causal structure, Mm -hmm. right? So if you look down at what's going on in the cortex, you see a huge integrated web of 
causal uh, connections. And integrated information uh, theory is all about how do systems integrate their information that's flowing across the different parts of it. Mm. And obviously in the brain, there's all these different pathways that allows for this constant re-entrant feedback between the types of information. That's very different in terms of the causal structure of where how the information flowing along a causal structure compared to say a serial processing of like your desktop computer. Yeah. So I would say we're, the really interesting thing about how your theory of consciousness can impact your moral decisions is in a case like this, wherein if you bought IIT, and I'm not saying that it is 100% the correct theory of consciousness, but certainly it's what a theory of consciousness should look like. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that it's a first historically to, to look like that, which is really kind of astounding. If you are, if you have that, then you have completely opposite results depending on on what system is your brain emulation running if it's running on your souped up laptop even if it is just as functional as a human being it could turn out that when you check for at which physical scale is the consciousness being maximized what's the boundaries of the system it just breaks down into all these um parts and there's no cohesion over it. So you're still getting it to say, no, please don't kill me. Don't turn me off. I want to live. Yeah. And you're actually able to then say, no, you're lying. <laughs> you're not actually conscious. You just kind of think you are. And you can freely turn that computer off yeah. versus like a neuromorphic computer, which is very similar to the human brain. Um, or maybe even different, but still providing basically the still providing a causal structure along which you can really integrate information across the different parts, and that's being used to accomplish the the brain emulation. Then that thing actually has a particular uh, claim, right. moral claim. Right. So you really, if if you take your theory seriously, it can give you radically different results across stuff that would be very non-intuitive. I think we should start cleaning it up there already. Because, yeah, yeah. It, there's a lot. It's a, I just I warn you and the listener. There's kind of two conversations that, two topics that happen with Eric that I sort of realize halfway through what's happening. Hopefully, you'll hear me sort of become slightly smarter <laughs> halfway through this interview. But there's, of course, trying to understand. Well, there's actually three things. There's one trying to understand IIT, mm. and we could try to rip that apart a little bit. Two is if you understand IIT, integrated information theory, where should you look for it? Which he's already talking about a little bit, which is mm -hmm. a story about emergence that gets really cool. And then the third, of course, that I want us to do a lot of is like, why does this even matter? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't this. I don't know if you could already tell this is a different approach to like a Thomas Nagel kind of like the best we can do mm -hmm. is just, hey, it's, it's, you know, I could imagine being that thing. This is actually like, no, 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 no. Imagine's not good enough. Like, how do I test yeah. what that thing is? There's something a little bizarre to me about the integrated information theory. And again, I don't, I, I feel like I could probably summarize it in a sentence, but without knowing really yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah. But the, the bizarreness is that so you're starting out trying to figure out what things in this universe have conscious experiences and what things don't. Hmm. And that even to even to start answering the question, you have to presume you know. So so you have to presume you know that you're conscious. That's hmm. the first thing you know completely. You assume that things that seem really similar to you are also conscious. And that's basically like 
the second most secure bedrock principle that you can assume about consciousness. Mm -hmm. The first being there's something it's like, there's something happening to be, to be me, whatever identity is, however I'm misled, something's happening. Mm -hmm. The second thing that virtually everyone assumes and Mm -hmm. is almost as impossible to doubt as the first thing is that things that are really, really similar to me Mm. that seem similar to me, I'm going to assume are conscious. The first thing being human beings. And then it's just gradations of similarity from mm-hmm. there, like children, babies, certain animals, ma- mammals. We start yeah, with mammals. Yeah. We start with mammals, and then primates. Probably even primates. Yeah. It, it's pretty. It, it's much easier to believe chimpanzees are than conscious than an yeah. oyster, and yeah. then you get further and further down the list. And then rocks seem so dissimilar that yeah. we assume they're not. So the the problem is, however you divide the bucket into conscious things and non conscious things, and then you're kind of coming up with a post hoc theory based on assuming these principles that may be fundamentally misguided. I, th- I think it might even with. reject the similarity principle. I mean, I, I, I think it's funny where this entire thing is going to be like, I think this is what the hell he's saying. Um, in the next section, I, I do actually introduce the problem of other minds and push back on this. And, and he has a, a pretty good answer for it. I think mm-hmm. of just like, we kind of, we we have to. He sort of pushes back on the almost solipsism mm-hmm. kind of uh, view that I that I I lend to him, mm-hmm. um, but I think it starts agnostically as all science should of just let's let's look at the question of consciousness without any intuition or assumption that might be a bias of our sort of like humanness. Um, in some ways it, it's agnostic about something like panpsychism, which is an idea that there's consciousness in everything at, at some level. It just might be so, so dim that like this doorknob next to us is, you know, not, not it's having, there is some consciousness in there, but even to say it's having it would be mm-hmm. absurd, but there's like something well, in there. Isn't it, it, isn't IIT. So, so the idea is the way we're going to determine conscious things from non-conscious things is we're going to figure out which things have or, or, or perform integrated information yeah, processing. Perform, yeah. And then we're going to say those things are conscious and things that don't do that kind of processing are non-conscious. Non-conscious are just like not, yeah, it doesn't, it's not at like a high enough level to right. care about. Right. Yeah. So the, the thing is that that does smuggle in like both of the principles. A similarity in our brain. Yeah, because you're, A, you're assuming other humans are conscious, which is fine. The question is what, what makes them conscious? Yeah. Well, I don't and know if it's, it's not what, obvious at all why that would be inform integrated information processing rather than yeah. I think the only thing it would thing? smuggle in is just knowing that at least if IIT or something like it is correct, well then our brains must be performing it, mm-hmm. or not even our our our, our beings <laughs> somewhere must be performing it because maybe we need the gut involved too. Who knows these days? Mm-hmm. Um, but that we the the the, G, the physical system of J is giving rise to the emergent property of Janus that I'm experiencing somewhere. So whatever this physical system is of J mm-hmm. is performing IIT. I think it right. demands that, but that's fine because, because then you can, but, but that's almost the same question of like, can't you only, even if you think this thing works, can't you only actually perform the experiment on one data point, which is yourself? Because I can point it at you. This is what I challenge him with. And he, again, he pushes back. But if I point it at you and I'm like, look, it says you're conscious that that feels good enough but i actually can't absolutely prove that i can only point it at my if i point it at myself and it reads no consciousness i know the meter's broken mm-hmm. but right. 
I can't actually prove the opposite of that. But anyway, he has a good pushback on that. Um, but you see, like to to try to to try to hold this conversation down to again this researcher with his finger on the button. He, I think, immediately is saying, because watch, I mean, your intuition, I don't even know your intuition on that button. If this computer is saying, you know, I'm conscious, don't turn me off, please don't, Coleman, do you turn it, I mean, do you turn it off? It's like, because if the the model that you're using for consciousness is, if it appears, but maybe you could say no, because it doesn't have anything like a brain, so I'm good, which is in some ways what he's doing with this, but Uh a little less it wouldn't be brain. It would be more like, no, you could turn that one off because it's not performing IIT. Right. No, like he, a, so, yeah. so he, yeah, he would be comfortable turning it off yeah. so long as he knew it, it was, it was a, saying those words by some means that didn't involve IIT. Yes. I'm not sure I would be comfortable with that. Well, yeah. Comfort is like a, yeah. Different. Because like, I guess the, I, I would err on the side of worrying that it was alive because mm. so like I said, the second principle that you can't doubt really, or that you can't seriously doubt is that things that seem very similar to me are conscious. And if a thing is talking just like a human, that taps that intuition enough for me to the point where, you know, the same logic by which I justify that you are conscious and I don't kill you Mm, unless you do something really messed up. Yeah. Um, that same intuition is tapped in the case of the robot. So absent a deeper understanding of what makes you conscious, yeah. which I'm not really persuaded that we have, we I'm don't. Gonna, have, I'm, I'm going to yeah. give it. I'm going to give the computer the benefit of the, of the yeah. doubt. I think the big the big test. We'll I'll, see. I'll, yeah, I'll jump back into it because the big test is like the the big question hinging around this that that we'll start tackling is could you if you had a scientific model of consciousness in hand that was so solid and so good, and we'll we'll talk about what that even might mean. He actually gets to some really interesting um, experiments or anecdotes about IIT in particular, because he said it's falsifiable. Like a good scientific model needs to have experiments that can prove it or, or, you know, disqualify it. Um, There's a really, it's an interesting one that he gets to later about like predicting which patients will come out of, a coma. Mm-hmm. So if something like IIT gets something like that right a million times in a row, and then you point it at a robot and it says, oh yeah, nothing, you're good, unplug it. Mm-hmm. Or like a Westworld type robot who's really convincing. If you trust that model enough, even though your intuition has been tapped, that that's an interesting and tricky like moment to be in. Which yeah. I, I imagine this researcher, if this researcher in our dilemma subscribe to the model of IIT, but this thing was just running on his, you know, Windows laptop, he would have no hesitation to... Here's the thing. Yeah. All of the scientific theory and the, the you know, the test, the, the allegedly testable <laughs> theories ultimately rest on the bedrock that if something reports that it's conscious, we we might want to trust that. So, for example locked in syndrome where a person looks exactly like they're in a coma, Mm -hmm. but they can actually feel everything. The only reason we believe that locked in syndrome, like we believe that they are conscious is because when they come out of the coma, they say, guys, you will not believe what just happened to me. Remember when you thought I was in a coma? 
I felt everything. But what if I had? Right? So it's just there's it's just their word that we're taking yeah, that, that on. And good, then, and then good... after the fact, we look at what was happening in their brain and we right. say, oh well, you can tell they're in locked in syndrome because this neuron right. is firing, and they, their brain looks different from a coma patient in this way. But we're resting that on their first person testimony. Yeah, but even that would be like if if you had a hundred of those patients in front of you, and again, they from the outside they all just looked totally, you know, the same. But then you you pointed this IIT conscious obeter at all of them and it got it exactly right. Like mm-hmm. it predicted the 50 that would wake up and the 50 that are just totally brain dead and, mm-hmm. and, and never coming back. Um, that would be that would be better, better than because, you know, that would be better than sort of what you're then we just have to sort of like wait and see. We talk about Terry Schiavo in this next one coming. Do you remember Terry Schiavo? No, I don't. Yeah, see, like I told you before we started recording, everything in this show is me just coming with a reference and being like, oh yeah, you're like five years old. So don't know. Uh, Terry Schiavo was a famous case that captured the, the imagination of the country of this woman in Florida. I think it was, I'll probably get the details wrong. I think her, her husband, she had been like in a coma and I think, you know, whatever, this is already controversial, but brain dead for like years and years and years. The husband wanted to pull the plug. Finally, the family wanted to keep her alive. For some reason, this case captured the news media and everyone was talking about it. I think eventually they did pull the plug. Something like this would be really useful to have to point at her. Anyway, right, talk right, about it. right. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I'll, I'll jump back in. It's yeah. Okay. This, this one. So, you know, we have 16 shows in this first season is the most important one to me. But also probably the cloudiest one, because I, I'm a, I'm of the because when we're talking about morality, I'm in the camp that when you're talking about morality, your consciousness is the entire key to it. If something isn't conscious, it makes no claims as you already put out, and so we don't need to worry about it. This, um, you know, when when I think about IIT, it's like a divining rod that you point at something and it, it sort of tells you it's like a like a like a, a meter that you're just pointing exactly. At it. And if that could work, and you're pointing that at um, at uh, what was her name, the the one in Florida, Terry Shivo. Terry Shivo. Yep. You're pointing at Terry Shivo, and it tells you, oh, like there's nothing nothing left there. Yep. That affects your decision there. Or if you point it at at a, I don't eat meat, but if you point that thing at a cow, I eat meat on the grounds of conscious claims. And if you point that thing at a cow, and it tells me, oh, it's got nothing for whatever reason it, it would, you could tell me if I'm right or wrong. And then I'd be rather challenged. And this gets to the moral question of do you, of how much do you trust just my gut intuition versus the like, well, the science says so. But that's kind of how we have to operate through all of life is trusting the science Precisely. on some level. So this isn't, I use IIT as an example because it has historical claim to be the first scientific theory of consciousness. Yeah. It looks the way we want a theory of consciousness to look, which is literally almost like a divining rod. I can feed in some arbitrary physical system, uh, a company, a brain, I can feed in anything. And the, the theory is almost like an algorithm that transforms my physical input into the output of how conscious is this thing? Is it composed of one or many consciousnesses? Mm -hmm. And what is it conscious of? And that formal structure as almost like an algorithm that you can apply to the world did not exist prior to IIT. Yeah. So you have these, these theories of consciousness, like maybe global workspace theory is one, which is kind of saying that consciousness is like a big global workspace for the brain where you kind of pin stuff. 
it, it it was invented in the 80s, so they didn't have desktops. So that would be the real like bulletin board. Yeah, yeah. It, it, okay. it's, it, but it's a it's a, like a graphic user interface yeah. almost. But that's a metaphor. You can't right. apply that in any sense. So even if IIT is not correct, it still shows this model of what might be possible. And once you're thinking in terms of this model, in terms of I have this theory and I can just go out in the world and measure stuff and input systems, I can start making, the backing up these moral claims. Yeah. But here's the problem for me, Eric, with all of the consciousness stuff. And this, I think mm -hmm. this will branch into your narrative work as well. Is there a fundamental flaw in the... Um, problem of proving consciousness from the outside. I can't prove that you're not a robot sitting across from me right now. Really, I can only prove my own consciousness because I'm experiencing it. Is I wonder how many consciousness researchers have gone insane or ended up accidentally <laughs> killing themselves by poking themselves in the brain, seeing where the thing was. I wonder the last words of like half of the consciousness researchers is like, oh, I found it. And then they stab themselves and that's, and that's the end of it. If you catch my meaning of like, you can point this rod at anything you want and you could show me the science works as much as you want. And you point it at me and it says that I'm conscious. And you're like, oh, that thing works. But I, is it fundamentally impossible philosophically to prove consciousness outside of oneself? I think that we need to be clear about separating the problem of solipsism, which mm -hmm. is a real problem. I yes. mean, if, if you, Descartes is the first person to really understand the severity of the epistemic situation that individual human minds are placed in, which is that fundamentally, we cannot actually trust our senses. Mm -hmm. And he kind of goes on to, to show that the only thing you can really be sure about is that you exist. I think therefore I am. Yeah. This is the, yeah. But Punch he line. then says this situation is untenable. Mm -hmm. So therefore, God exists and kind of rescues this situation so that there is no demon that's um, uh, controlling my senses or making me think the way that I want to think. But um, if you kind of <laughs> don't believe in God, you're, you're still in this problem. And I think essentially what humans do is we just bracket the problem away. Mm -hmm. We just say, OK, yes, fine. But let's, if you do assume that, then you get nothing done. Yes. So let's assume the opposite. And then, it, wow, it looks like we can, we can do all this other stuff. So I'm a little bit nervous about attributing an impossibility to a problem that oftentimes defenders of that view will end up basically redescribing the problem of solipsism mm -hmm. and say, well, you can't really prove to me that you're conscious or it's like, well, by these sort of um, by this sort of epistemic standard, I really can't prove anything, anything to you, right. in which case, um, we're, you know, that's fine. Uh, but we're no longer defining a playable game. Yeah. If you and I want to have a playable game, we want to build a civilization. We want to do science. We want to do all this other stuff. We need to have some sort of a way to show each other facts yeah, yeah. or so on. So I, I, I'm a little bit nervous because I think. There are some very smart people who draw that line very finely. Um, Colin McGinn, a mm -hmm. philosopher, um, has talked a, a, a bit about this, about trying to really separate out what makes consciousness so difficult. Mm -hmm. But so far, historically, what has happened is that philosophy, which people often group consciousness under, mm -hmm. say that research into consciousness is like philosophy. It's like, well, maybe yes at first. But history is full of examples 
of things being very firmly in the philosophical domain and then moving over into science. And if you think about philosophy as this big kind of monolithic block, it's like science comes along ever so often and shaves off a part of it and puts it into the science camp. And that's happened with logic. It's happened with math. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. formal logic is much closer to math now than it is to philosophy. Mm -hmm. I think the same thing is happening in our day with causation. Causation is something that was firmly in the philosophy camp. Scientists talked about it all the time, but didn't like to delve too deeply into it. And now I think that the most interesting people to look at in terms of the research they're doing on causation are scientists like Judea Pearl, mathematicians really. Um, who are formalizing the notion of interventions and counterfactuals and all these other things. So, and I'm trying to do kind of something similar for emergence. Um, mm -hmm. And so from that perspective, I don't like to get too kind of mystical or talk too much about cognitive closure because, you know, if we can come up with stuff like string theory, then there has to be some way to at least get a workable theory of consciousness even if there's some residual mystery at right. the end. I right. mean, I, I think that plenty of people can understand, you can still have calculus and still be a bit perplexed by Zeno's paradox of the archer shooting the arrow and the arrow never reaching its target. That's a hard paradox to get out of, even if you know calculus. But if you put it to the side, you can invent calculus. Right. And you can use that to do a lot of stuff. You heard my challenge sort of of like this meter's impossible to build uh -huh. and his answer of sort of, well, I don't know if you want to define solipsism that we raised, which is a term. I always use the Truman Show as a way to sort of like oh, yeah. imagine it. You've seen that one, right? I, I know of Jesus it. I know the premise. Coleman. What should I use? Like, I mean, the earliest thing <laughs> I'm aware of is like, <laughs> like Britney Spears hits. Like to calibrate right, your mind, like of, the first yeah, music I remember hearing was like, Oops, I did it again. Or yeah, I'm trying to think if she's writing like, about solipsism. Probably not. So. Britney, Britney, not to get into the solipsism. <laughs> okay, you haven't well, seen her paper in um, philosophy. <laughs> yeah, Christina Aguilera has the, anyway. So solipsism, yeah, is this this notion that you are the only thing conscious in the universe, right? It's like it's frankly, Britney Spears might have been actually, a bit of a solipsism. You're right. You're right. <laughs> you think about it. Yeah. So in the Truman Show, which you know of, he is the only one that the entire universe is made for him, and that mm -hmm. in that instance, it was a show that they were all there for him. But um, yeah, solipsism is that nothing else is real. You're the only th thing conscious in the entire universe, really. It's just, it's all a simulation just for you. Um, this is sort of like the solipsistic view, in in which case the problem of other minds is is there. Solipsism, is like I always think, it, like it must be right. It's right experientially, but as he's sort of pointing out to me, like it's it's a dead end. If you stop there, it's a dead end. You can't do anything. If the world is not real, we like if we pull ourselves up, ourselves up from our bootstraps that the world is really out there, then you can do all this stuff that he's talking about. Mm -hmm. I, I tend to like what he said. I kind <laughs> of, I'm kind of of two minds about it. That's On a, the one probably hand, a good pun there. <laughs> find it. It's good. Yeah, yeah. we'll get into split brain. Yeah, we should actually. Yeah, at we some should. Point. But. Um, I'm of two minds about it because on the one hand, I'll make two quick analogies. So like consciousness could be kind of like the simulation problem, which is, uh, you know, basically we could be living in the matrix. How do you know mm -hmm. you don't? 
there's even ways of arguing that we're more likely to be living in a simulated world than, than a real world. The, the long and the short of it for the purpose of this conversation is you really can't know whether you're living in the matrix. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Morpheus, it, it's not foretold that Morpheus is going to come to you with a red pill and a blue pill. A lot of people in the matrix didn't get the advantage of Morpheus coming to them. Um, and you're more likely to be one of those people rather than Neo. Don't mm-hmm. be self-flattering. You're probably not the one. Yeah. So what do you do with that? It's kind of like the solip- solipsism problem in the sense that you just really can't know it. Mm-hmm. And imagine if we were living in the Matrix and discussing that problem. And then we said, well, actually, we're going to table that for now. That's just kind of a philosophical worry. And then we're going to come up with these really precise scientific theories about who's living in the Matrix and who's not. We're going to be able to determine by looking at a society, mm-hmm. we're going to come up with some theory that determines really specifically what, where a lot is at stake, who's in the matrix and, and, and who's living in the real world. And I'm not sure that that would be valid at all because hmm. you're still kind of constrained by the, the initial problem, which is you, you don't even, but it's valid. I don't even at, know whether it's valid as constrained by that initial, because but, it, the, but the initial constraint is so constraining that it's you, not, you, you shouldn't pretend to, I, to like have some, deep theory that is really doing something important. It might be the constraint that we're, that is just fundamental though, because the the thing with the matrix analogy is Neo, when he sees through the matrix and then he sees reality as it really is, Mm -hmm. there's nothing that says that that's just another matrix and it's just an infinite regressive matrix is all the way down. Right. That I don't know. Like in that movie, there was some like weird alien blobs and, and brains and vats kind of deal uh-huh. happening. But one of those aliens might come to them and be like, hey, you want to take a purple pill and see the, <laughs> the real matrix of the matrix? And then that one would just go further. So at some point, it's like if we're in a simulation and we're stuck in it, like we can play around. As he said, like you can play around in the simulation itself and figure things out. Like gravity has rules and patterns that you can predict, even if gravity is just being simulated on some huge computer somewhere in some other dimension that we're, that's that we're different, unaware so like, of. That kind of get, I like your point about the matrix. And in fact, it, I kind of attempted to bite the bullet and say like, they were actually kind of irrational not to question whether the new world was also the matrix. Cause yeah. once you open that door, yeah, there's what's to say it's not, there's more doors. Why are you closing it at the first world? Right. But it's, it's very different from gravity in the sense that, you can say, well, I don't know if if we're living in the real world, but let's study gravity. You mm. can do that because truths about gravity are true, contingent on the world being real, mm-hmm. right? And, and the question of gravity isn't the same as the question of whether the world is real. What you can't do is say, well, we have no idea whether the world is real. Now let's come up with a theory to figure out which worlds are real and, and which worlds aren't. Because the initial principle is so undermining of the project. But is it fair to say, okay, gravity's in this world, whether simulated or real. We can we can predict it and find patterns in it, and it's it's a thing in this in in this world. And consciousness is also a thing in this world, even if it's I'm the only one who knows that. Like, is it, I, I guess I'm failing to see how gravity as a truth of the universe that we're in is different than consciousness as a truth of the universe that we're in, even though, again, I can only prove one. See, uh, gravity and consciousness are just like epistemically very different because there's no, there was no solipsism problem with gravity ever. That was never the problem with gravity. It was never a problem of 
being able to know whether... But we still don't know what gravity is. I guess that's why I'm finding the analogy useful. Like, we can just observe the functionality and the phenomenology of gravity. We, it's still a mystery. I mean, Einstein had, has a better model of it than Newton, but still we don't have a unified model of it. But we can observe and predict its behavior in the, the way it manifests. The phenomenon of gravity mm-hmm. is part of the phenomenon of the universe. And so the phenomenon of my consciousness is also a phenomenon of the universe. Well, it, I mean, everything's a phenomenon of the universe. The, yeah. the, the, like there are huge different, they're very, very, very big differences in terms of different phenomena in the universe. And I think what makes consciousness unique is the very principle by which we judge others to be conscious, um, which is like this kind of vague similarity principle that we can't totally justify we're trying to develop of like a very specific theory mm-hmm. based on those principles that we're just endorsing for gut reasons. Yeah. There are no principles that the that that Einstein's theory of gravity rests on that are just like gut pretty unjustified but that's what it's yes. all observation so it's to, to begin with so going to like the edge cases of great yeah and it serves us really well the gut instinct of consciousness and just granting it to other and things it's also completely like falsifiable because it, it's, it's just, just completely that i'm conscious well that that Prove like it, no 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 i'm talking about gravity <laughs> oh okay, I'm talking yeah, about gravity, gravity yes. like gravity is like like if i proposed a theory of gravity right now and it didn't predict when mars right came into sight from earth my theory would be wrong yeah how do we do that with consciousness well, he's gonna get into what's it. the yeah. ultimate uh, cash value of saying know. that the the computer the iit has predicted that this is not right. conscious i mean that's why it's like, very different it's different but it's it's, it's different because what, what, we know so like little what's about the, it. I feel like... To, I feel like with, with gravity and other problems, there's almost like an analogy of like an appeals process. There and is. Like yeah, the universe appeal, will decide. Yeah. The universe will decide. There's mm-hmm. like a kind of metaphorical Supreme Court. Yeah. There's no such thing. It's hard. And, and, it's and hard. The, I, you know, That's why I propose... speaking about it as if it's like gravity. But it may, So problems. he makes a case at the end to give it like that. It will be one day. Like, I mean, I don't know how convincing it's very flimsy of the like, well, it's philosophy now, it'll be science one day. But that's kind of how you're trapped in these things when you know so little. The thing uh, is, you, you don't you don't have to pretend to know more than you do. You don't have to. That's not yeah. required. It's not required that we come up with a precise theory of what's conscious or not because there are no better alternatives. But there, so but going to these edge cases of like, well, because now we're we're in them as, as you know, the show does so much is like points to like, well, conscious robots is was a thought experiment a long time ago now is actually a, a thing where a robot can be so convincing that you do have it pulls on that intuition that you're 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 feeling or even mm-hmm. I, I brought up uh, uh oysters which don't have a brain or a central nervous system so according to your like similarity model of consciousness i don't know how you feel about oysters well yeah that's the point i mean <laughs> is is like, it, but but I mean, but is it, but because i mean maybe the oysters one feels less i don't know urgent than the computer one but it could we could it's a genocide of oysters happening right it, now or it it's not be. that's a huge that, thing that's what I'm saying. <laughs> right and it's, either it's like or genocide or not is such a <laughs> consequential question but that's why i'm making a pitch that like we do need a better model of consciousness than the, than the one that has served us really well which is sort of the gut intuition to grant similar things to us consciousness which, as you know, religions have severed like the man from the beast forever, where it was like they kind of solved the problem problem by just sort of 
saying like, no, 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 like we're the only things that really matter in this universe. Yeah. Like, you can solve this problem and make yourself feel better about it in all kinds of illegitimate ways. It would be nice to have one. He, what he's trying to do, I'll let him speak. Then we're going to, we'll keep doing this, but I'm with you. He claims at the beginning, like he says, IIT is probably not the final answer on it. It almost surely isn't, mm-hmm. but, he, but it has the, the characteristics of what you want this kind of thing to do, which includes being falsifiable and empirical where you start to look for those studies. I already sort of gave away his, his, their biggest success, which is predicting who comes out of a coma, which seems interesting. It's hard to come up with these tests for it. Like I was making a joke, maybe a bad joke, but that the best test would just be to do it on yourself, which would probably kill you the moment that you falsified. (laughs) But, Uh um, if you could do that in some way, and maybe we could think of of better experiments to do, that would be tremendously useful. And then we're going to, we'll talk about how from 2001, a space odyssey, um, we can bring in other sci-fi robots. We talked about Westworld already, Ex Machina is sort of an, an interesting mm-hmm. case. Um, uh, that one's before my time. Ex Machina. I'm kidding. You're I'm like kidding. two years old. Now. Yeah, it was a good movie. Anyway, <laughs> I'll jump really back good. in. We'll, we'll keep doing this. <laughs> what hinges on all of this? Why does anyone get interested in it in the first place? Is like, it, as you were saying, to like to, to build the entire civilization of moral frameworks, this is the work that needs to be done to get it off the ground, it seems to me. In order to really say, make strong moral claims, like let's say you're an effective altruist and you actually want to, you know, maximize the good that you're doing in the world. Well, so far, a lot of scientific theories have overturned our naive views of the world. And they've often had surprising counterintuitive findings. And something very similar to that might happen with consciousness. As an example, and I wouldn't say that this is going to happen, but it literally could. It turns out that corn is basically just as conscious as a cow. All right. You're going to have to explain that to me a little bit. Yeah. And well, it's just that you, you have your scientific theory. Okay. And it's basically, let's say that it's something like integrated information theory. It's kind of like how much information is this, uh, organism kind of, um, integrating, uh, as a whole. And it turns out that corn integrates way more information than we thought. It, it, it integrates all of this stuff about soil and sunlight, and it actually has all sorts of internal responsiveness, maybe to bugs. It has ways of defending itself. Like pl- plants are actually quite complex. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that if you actually have a metric for that complexity, it turns out to be basically as complex as anything a cow does. Mm-hmm. Cows are just bigger. They're just way bigger, and they have faces. <laughs> so we think this thing you know, it's kind of like us. But, and I'm, again, not saying that this is going to turn out this way. It's just that when you actually judge things by, you have to just accept what your theory tells you. And if something like that turns out to be the case, then all the moral reasoning behind, say, vegetarianism mm-hmm. is just completely wrong. Because it's just that, no, it turns out that it's actually better to say eat a chicken than a very complex plant that's actually doing way more than you thought it was because it turns out there's this whole big plant network and you know so on. So yeah. it, that's the sort of thing that um, it's actually I think people in the future are going to look back and say you know these poor savages mm-hmm. they had no even basis to make any sort of moral claims. Yeah, Jesus. 
<laughs> but the, so before we, we move from that one, but the substrate material, so where does the substrate, maybe this is the way to hinge into to emergence, the substrate material of a cow versus corn <laughs> seems, seems rather different to me in my yeah. non-scientific mind uh, of the like, is there anywhere for the corn to even... Uh, be experiencing that yeah, consciousness. Yeah, let me just clarify. I don't actually think, uh, probably corn is almost certainly not conscious. I was going to stop but, eating corn or, yeah. just, or <laughs> go back to eating cows. But, wasn't sure what I was going to do. <laughs> uh, if, you, if you think about this structure, I, I, I want a scientific theory of consciousness yeah. and I want it to be a very useful one. And I want it to take the format such that I can input some arbitrary physical system mm -hmm. and output either how it breaks down into multiple consciousness, how it basically doesn't have any consciousness, and what it's conscious of and what the level of the consciousness is. Yeah. Okay, so I input my physical description. What? Let's say I, I've even decided I want to do it on a computer, and let's say I'm using your laptop. Mm -hmm. And I don't expect to find that much, but, but I'm, I'm still going to do it. Now here's a question. At what scale do you describe the physical system that is your computer at? Because it turns out that your, your uh, computer is not just one system. It's this gigantic hierarchy of possible descriptions, some of which are more macroscopic, like, say, at the level of um, the graphic user interface of your desktop and kind of the level at which um, you might experience your computer at. Or you might describe it in terms of, say, the causal relationships of its... Um, underlying programming or maybe even its machine code mm -hmm. and then you could go all the way down to the quarks that make up the computer such that it's just kind of this floating quark cloud mm -hmm. so which of those do you input because you're going to get a different answer depending on which one you input for the iit math? for iit but I, I think scale is very hard to define okay. things that are completely scale invariant yeah um particularly any sort of algorithm or metric that's like 100% scale invariant is 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 difficult. Yeah. So you're going to get scale. And we know that because, of course, um, one can kind of think about it this way, that a theory of consciousness should be relatively substrate neutral, mm -hmm. right? Which in a certain sense should mean that it shouldn't depend on the microscopic, you know, small microscopic changes to what whatever uh, whatever it is that you're you're you want to measure on. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, um, we needed to figure out how do we model systems at different scales and how do we uh, kind of assess the causal structure of a physical system at different scales. And when during my PhD, what we did was that we kind of said, well, from first principles, how do you do this? And what we did was we defined very simple systems. We started with systems that are very easy to define, almost like our own physics. It's like a system with, say, eight states, and those eight mm -hmm. states transition to one another um, in very well-defined probabilities, and it's discrete, and it's finite. So it's just really easy stuff to work with. And then we said, what are all the possible scales for this system? We grouped every possibility. We just brute force searched everything. And what you find is that you can find maximum. You can find peaks at which the information that you have about the causal relationships which is also how the different parts of the system constrain the past and the future of the other parts. That information can actually be maximal at scales far above the lowest possible level of description. And that kind of gives you an, uh, a path forward for describing this maybe naive, maybe philosophical notion of emergence mm -hmm. 
as a form of error correction, wherein the macroscopic descriptions of systems actually uh, offer uh, error correction over the noise of the microscopic description because microscopic descriptions are often immensely noisy. Right. They, they, you, you just have no idea how the system's going to evolve in time. But at a macroscopic level, because you're dealing with coarse grains, because you're dealing with black boxes, you can actually have much more certainty in terms of knowing how things are going to evolve in time. And so that you can actually quantify that difference and you can put in like a bit number on it and say, actually, I've gained, you know, 10 bits by moving up in scale and finding. And it's kind of like focusing a camera. Right. And you want to focus your camera such that the causal structure of the system pops out the most and the system's actually in focus. And it turns out that when you just analyze many types of systems, not all, many types of systems just at the microscopic level, you are out of focus in terms of understanding the causal structure. Mm. And that is kind of, and that kind of gives us a first step in um, defining some sort of emergence and defining some sort of reduction. So we want to know when should I really reduce? When do I want to have the most fine-grained description possible? And when do I want to have a meso or macro scale description? So the, the I, I got to understand the, the notion of the causal structure. Uh, if all of my little quirks stop moving in exactly the same way they're doing, won't I stop being, I w I'll stop having the experience of J. Yes. The emergence of the J-ness <laughs> of me will stop, uh, otherwise known as death, I presume. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we have to, that's a very good point. We have to distinguish between when you have a full description and parts. So parts versus holes, mm. um, people kind of know how that works, right? If I have one logic gate and I combine it with another logic gate, I can get a different logic function, mm -hmm. right? So th this, this kind of thing is, is very well known. But there's a much broader question, which is, let's say I have the full description of the system. Let's say it's your brain. Okay. And we have the entire kind of quark cloud of your brain evolving according to the most fundamental laws of physics forward in time. Mm -hmm. Now, that thing is going to have a lot of noise in its evolution. Now, I, I don't love making claims about physics because most of the work that I do is not actually, is actually in, in simulations. Mm -hmm. So it's like kind of simpler physics in a way, but I'm just gonna speculate a bit here. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're kind of, this quark cloud is evolving forward in time. And you would say, well, it's kind of causing the future states. And that's true, mm -hmm. but it's also under constraining them because um, you can also describe your brain at a macroscopic level, like say at the level of neurons, like a neuroscientist would. When that thing evolves in forward time, which is the same system, but just mm -hmm. described at a higher level, it actually has more certainty in terms of uh, that there is basically this extra information in that the noise has been minimized or reduced. So let me just pause it there. Like, so the, the slightly zoomed out level, when you say more certainty, it's like if I was, if you, if you gave me information about that and paused it and you said predict what will happen in the next five seconds, if I had that level rather than the first zoom, more zoomed in level, I would be more likely to be correct. Yeah. I'm with you there. Uh, yeah. still, I still don't understand what, why. Well, okay, go on. And I can give you a very simple example <laughs> okay. of that, which yeah. is, uh, you know, we can play like a guessing game about yeah. your future state. Yeah. And we, um, one um, guesser is uh, Laplace's demon who yes. knows the exact, uh, you know, like atomic quark, whatever coordinates of mm -hmm. your brain. And they're going to guess where, what state your brain is going to be in, mm -hmm. in, 
um, let's say uh, 16 hours, right? Yeah. And you say, oh, so what they're gonna propose is a gigantic ledger of possible atomic configurations. It's gonna be enormous, mm -hmm. right? But let's assume that it's finite, but it's just this astronomic number of yeah. possible, all very low probability. It doesn't know which of these you're gonna be in. And I say, okay, I'm gonna play the same guessing game, but I'm gonna describe you at a macroscopic level. Mm -hmm. And I say, you're gonna be asleep. <laughs> yeah, right. 100%. Like, yeah, it's, yeah. you're going to be tired. You're going to be asleep. Yeah. You just, it's going to be like four in the you morning. You don't know how much coffee I drank unless it's <laughs> 16 hours, but yeah. Yeah, it's, it's going to be four in the morning. You're, you're, you're certainly going to be asleep, right? And this is how we interact with humans at this kind of macroscopic uh, mm -hmm. level of description. Now, what has happened there? I've introduced a way to correct errors, right? You had an immense mm -hmm. possibility, like you could be kind of sleeping in all sorts of different ways but as long as you're within the macro state of sleep yeah i get to be correct about my guess about the future so i've minimized the noise but you can only guess at the same level as the information you had right well right. if i have if i'm comparing two possible yeah. models then i have i want to say how does this evolve forward in time yeah. at the macroscopic level versus how does it evolve forward in time at the microscopic level right, right you right. could of course start at the microscopic and guess at the macroscopic, which would basically mm -hmm. give you the same result. Uh, it, yeah, it Laplace's slightly. demon, like 98% of his states would have been, oh, that's emerging a sleep yeah. pattern? For, for basically, for him to perform the same error correction, he yeah. has to then group over states and yes, do exactly right. what I did okay, originally, yeah. right? So he has to, he ends up at the same place that I was, but the only difference is that he first predicts the microscale and then builds up the macro scale, mm -hmm. which is fine, but you're still ending up with a macro state, mm -hmm. right? So... That, um, that, that's an immensely kind of simplified mm -hmm. uh, a way to describe this. But what I think is going on is that, yes, it's true that your micro-level constituents are doing causal work and moving you into the future and, and so on. But because of the noise that exists in nature, actually, um, the error correction that goes on probably vastly outstrips even the original kind of work that goes on. So, mm -hmm. you know, you, you can easily divide. So this is this kind of theory of, of describing mathematically how all of this works uh, is called causal emergence. Mm -hmm. And you can have systems that, um, you know, start with, say, 0.4 bits of kind of information that you have about causation, very minimal, but then after you group, you end up with like 100 bits. So you can have the vast majority of kind of the work in terms of the constraint over the past and the future be done at meso and macroscopic levels. Believe it or not, we're still talking about the guy with his finger on the button. And this is the kind of conversation with us, like that it sounds like with a scientist and more of like an engineer. So like to connect this to like emergence, it's like there's two, like just even to describe the, the phenomenon of emergence, I always just, in a simpler case, think of like a wave in the ocean. So it's like, if, if the if you zoom in close enough, you'll just see, you know, eight molecules of H2O. If you zoom in really, really close, you're just going to see one molecule of H2O just sort of going up and down. Mm -hmm. You won't see a wave. You have no idea waves happening. If you just move back a little bit, then you see the one next to it is bobbing up and down, but a little bit offset and then further back and further back. Eventually you see this wave happening. So the wave is emerging from the behavior of the substrate material. And then the creepy part about this is... It's, it's totally substrate independent, meaning you, you could take that same exact wave and start replacing all of the molecules of water with molecules of, of it could be Legos for all the wave cares. And mm -hmm. as long as they're behaving the same way, the same wave will be emerging still. Right. 
but there's something spooky about that. And so that's what he's talking about here with emergence of like, if I'm going to input a brain or any system into my IIT algorithm, do I do it at the substrate level, like the molecule level or even deeper? Or I do it, do I do it at the wave level? Where is there some magic thing? I like his imagining focusing a camera to get it just right. Mm-hmm. A lot of times in science, we have this bias assuming that the, like the deeper and closer you get to it, the more you're going to understand it. That actually might not be true at all. And mm-hmm. then with the thing of consciousness is my consciousness appears to be a wave that is lifting off somewhere of all of the quarks that are doing their thing in my body right now. Um, so I'm emerging. Mm. So yeah, there's a famous, you may have read it. It, it gets quoted you know, almost any scientist or philosopher who talks about consciousness, famous thought experiment of aliens coming to earth or an alien coming to study earth, uh, from a a civilization where the aliens are made out of Silicon, Mm. they're conscious, far more advanced and they come down to earth. They have one alien liaison that comes down and kind of studies us and lives among us for a while and reports back. And he tells his people, you're not going to believe what I, what I found on earth. <laughs> There's conscious meat. <laughs> and they go, well, what are you talking about? We, everyone knows that only Silicon can right. be conscious and meat is just, no, 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 no. They're, they're, they have meat that's not conscious and they, they eat that, but also the meat does the thinking, right? The meat is doing the thinking and the talking and the eating. It's all meat. I, I looked at what they call brains. It's just more meat. And they go, well, what are you talking about? How is this possible? So that, that, that story often does a powerful job of, of getting at the intuition that consciousness is substrate neutral, that there's nothing special about me. Yeah. On the other hand, though, what if consciousness just is not substrate neutral? Yeah. Which is to say, what if they're, like, for all we know, there could be something magical about um, the meat in our brains. Yeah. Like, like the wave example. Mm-hmm. We know we can see many waves made out of many different things like water or like electrons. Yeah. So we know that waves can be made up of many different things, sound. Mm -hmm. But we, again, this gets to like the falsifiability problem. We only for sure know that something is, things are conscious insofar as they have brain meat, right? So it's like, it's not predestined or it's not a foregone conclusion yeah it's not the other the other like experiment that i really like to think about that one which as you were talking i was like wait i think i this one disproves it but it doesn't is like the ship of thesis experiment where i could do it almost the philosophical zombie the famous one is if a ship leaves the shores of england headed towards america and it's an old ship and like planks of wood are rotting on it as it's going across. So a plank of wood, you know, rots away and they replace it just while they're in the ocean. They have another one, they replace it. And then another one goes and they replace it. By the time they get to America, they've replaced every single piece of wood or everything on that ship. Mm -hmm. Well, is it a new ship? And if the answer is yes, well, at what point did it it become a new ship and it Mm -hmm. becomes this impossible problem. So if you do that with the the brain, let's just say your brain is, is the thing that's giving you consciousness and giving rise to consciousness. And then one of the neurons goes bad Mm -hmm. and I'm like, Oh, no problem, Coleman. I'll just replace that one. And I Mm -hmm. replace that one with one made out of silicon or some better material than your carbon. And then I do that with another one Mm -hmm. and another one. So if I do that one with one, you won't notice According to something like his theory, the information can still flow through it exactly the same way, whatever that means. And I do that with another one and another one. And eventually when I do your entire brain, 
will you from the inside have ever noticed? From the outside, I will not notice. Maybe. I mean, this could be an example of the continuum fallacy, though, right? Mm -hmm. That, like, it could be that I just gradually disappear yeah Yeah. gradually disappear and there's no one moment where i disappear yeah but would you would you be able to report it probably not i don't know because he was yeah exactly like that so that's like then why the it seems like the only foolproof experiments that you could perform are actually on yourself where where if it and then you and then you're stuck the answer is forever trapped in the ether because no one can believe you even at that point yeah but he's probably right that if we're going to get anything done with this we have to we have to just assume that it is substrate neutral and you can measure it out there in the world but we yeah you, we might be fundamentally wrong I, I i tend to agree with like i think even like some steven pinker who's a guest on in another one of our episodes i think is sort of in the camp that this is probably a fundamentally impossible question to answer but yeah. i i'm somewhat convinced by eric's like yeah just ignore that and see the best we can do assuming that it's answerable and assuming that the universe is out there and that consciousness is not magic but is actually a phenomenon in the universe not just like all the others but we're going to treat it as if it's like the others and do the best we can and see the best we can because that is kind of how we model the entire world anyway Mm, i think it's more intellectually honest to admit when you don't know yeah, but then, then to say we're gonna do the best we can, but also but we have real questions that to it's answer. Like, pretend that it's that our answers are very solidly grounded. But we, but, but we, we have real questions to answer. Like this, this researcher who's still standing there with his finger on the button this entire conversation. Well, yeah, well, we have uh, questions well, that, about abortion to what, answer. What, what you questions. don't, you, you might as well, in that in that case. I'm. So here's the thing. <laughs> yeah. His his pretense to have a predictively powerful theory is going to lead him to press the button and turn it off more often than my mm-hmm. agnosticism is because I'm probably just going to err on the side of, well, actually, all of our intuitions about consciousness don't lead us to any really like predictively powerful theory. So I'm going to err on the side of leaving the thing on. Yeah, but like you said, then we're either like you're a genocidal maniac, or I guess I would be in that case, or he would be. Yeah, and you're not. Those are like big moral <laughs> lines in the sand that I, we well, have like real questions to answer here. Yeah. So I, I want a theory of consciousness. Well, but that you don't get everything you want. Okay, you know let's keep listening. You know, <laughs> no, no, you're right. I mean, you're right. I, I probably won't get it. Like it's but, possible that we're like chickens trying to talk about calculus, and we might as well just like stick to what we can verify and like err on the side of not killing things rather than pretend we have real scientifically testable theories that would lead us to be way overconfident about, you know, ascribing consciousness or not to things. That's kind of my position. Let's keep listening. All right. So to try to pin this, back a little bit to our our dilemma at hand a little bit with the consciousness question because so is it is it a fair sentence to say that consciousness that it that it is an emergent property of a physical system we don't know exactly how that's happening but if we want to find out if it's happening it's i don't know somewhere above the the super zoomed in level is right. probably the best place to look yeah precisely yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so so when you're actually dealing with like wanting to construct a formal theory of consciousness, you're immediately thrown all these problems that don't really crop up 
in 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 other disciplines. Yeah. So so one example is okay. So what physical system do I feed in uh, to my kind of algorithm that can tell me how mm -hmm. conscious this thing is? And that is um, that is not something that kind of crops up in, in yeah. other disciplines. So suddenly you're forced to think about scale uh, in a way that you're not normally used to. Yeah. And that's what leads to this uh, kind of way of thinking about, okay, well, let's go back to first principles and just ask stuff like, how do we group over systems? How, how do we create like viable, sensible macro states? Um, how do we... Um, how do we evolve them forward in time? How do we see how one macroscopic variable constrains another macroscopic variable and compare it to the underlying micro variables? Mm. Okay, wait. I, I think I'm getting close to understanding something, <laughs> which is a good, which is a good start. Twenty, what are we? Half an hour in. So, like, because in where I'm still getting hung up, maybe on the philosophy of is this can, is this really science, or how do we make it science? How does this cross the threshold from philosophy to science? When will we know that's happened in some meaningful way? Which I agree is like crucially important. Um, so something like in traditional science, I'm going to use a bad term there for it, but in, in, in non-consciousness science, <laughs> empirical sort of science in some way, if you have an explanation for a physical phenomenon you see in the universe, let's say something like explaining why the seasons happen, and your explanation involves some conjecture that we're on a round planet and the axis sort of tilts and the sun is probably in the middle and not the earth, whatever. You build some model that explains it. Well, that makes predictions. In fact, that one would make a prediction that, oh, right now, it's if it's summer here in Boston, it's probably something like winter in Chile. And that's a prediction that could that it has empirical evidence that you could find in the universe that would make a prediction about a future state or a current state in mm -hmm. that regard. And then you could you could test it against the evidence of the universe to see how good your conjecture might be or your explanation for that for that phenomenon. Is that what is that is that equivalent to what you're trying to do of like explaining the future state of something? Because because again, yeah. what I still like struggle to find with is like you how can you can you're making explanations and you're making uh, you're trying to explain consciousness with this conjecture and here's the model does it make predictions that are actually testable anywhere is that what oh. you're trying to do here with this future thing so there are kind of two distinct things going on here one is talking about emergence and one is talking about consciousness and they're actually they're both domains that there's been a lot of mystery around, but mm. you can kind of treat them, and they have a lot of relationships, and sometimes it's confusing because I start off by talking about their relationship, and then I try to separate them. Yeah, right? yeah. First of all, you want your theories to have some sort of fundamental use testability, and that's really what makes them scientific. Mm. So on the consciousness side, let's talk about that first. On the consciousness side, what you want is that your theory to have some sort of applicability or results. And an example of this happened recently where people use integrated information theory to measure, at least at a heuristic uh, level, the amount of integrated information in uh, patients who were in various stages of coma. And what they found was that the patients who had larger amounts of integrated information were much more likely to wake up. Hmm. So that, that's a great example yeah. of using this in a direct medical way. I mean, another example is under anesthesia, people have a phenomenon where they wake up under anesthesia. And this happens probably much more likely, yeah. much more likely than we would like to think, uh, particularly because most um, anesthesia is also a, um, an amnesic drug. So it's probable that a good number of people are waking up during surgeries and then forgetting it. 
It's probably for the best. Yeah. Well, it's probably for the best, but it's also kind of your own personal little hell at the moment that yeah. it's happening, right? Yeah. Which we, we obviously want to avoid that. And that's a real medical scientific problem. And if yeah. an anesthesiologist has a kind of conscious ometer, then they can just kind of plug in and make sure that the, that the uh, surgery patient is still under. So that's an example of having like real serious, testable, actionable consequences hmm. on the side of consciousness. On the side of emergence, I think that where you find this actionability, because this is a problem that I think about a lot. Let's say that I have my emergence meter now. Yeah. I go around and I point it. Which is different than a consciousness Which is very different than a consciousness meter. Yep. I go around and I point it and it tells me like at what scale I should kind of model my system at. I'm speaking loosely, but it's basically saying where do the variables of the system kind of constrain one another to the greatest degree. So I go around and I find these peaks, right? What can I then do with that? What is the actual consequence? Because otherwise, I'm just doing metaphysics, right? (laughs) And the actual consequence is that this is where you want to experiment on, this is where you want to intervene on, and this is where you want to model your systems. And that has really significant consequences. An example would be something like the, the Blue Brain or Human Brain Project that they're doing in Europe, where they're trying to model the cortex, going back to brain emulations, Mm -hmm. at the most fine-grained possible level. But it might turn out that the cortex is actually best modeled at like a mesoscale level, maybe at the level of cortical columns, maybe mini columns, maybe it could be even larger, right, across thousands of groups of neurons. And when you model something too fine-grained, you're actually introducing noise that makes it harder for you to understand what's going on. Yeah. And if I'm going to do the average experiment, I want to do my experiments at the right scale, the scale at which when I randomize a variable, because that's what an experiment is. It's the injection of noise. It's the randomization mm. of something. Scientists are basically people who go around randomizing. That's <laughs> what a scientist really is. When I want my randomization to be informative. And so I literally use a metric which is saying, how do I, if I randomize a variable, how much information do I get about uh, from randomizing that variable. Yeah. And what you find is that that changes across scales. So you can pick out the scale at which when you randomize variables, you get more information out of it. So, so that's something that's actionable. It's how I should build models. It's how I should intervene. Right. It's, if I like didn't know what, how a ship worked or something, like, a, like a, a tall ship, and I was trying to model it at this quark level and then try to build my own, that would be... That'd be a huge pain in the ass. But if you zoomed out a little and modeled it at some other level and you've discovered this thing called a sale and the and maybe the functionality of it, whatever that that sort of zoomed out level, and then I built my own. If I know if I know what a sale is as an emergent property of all those tiny quirks, that's really helpful for me to then build a sale. Cause then maybe I understand it doesn't actually matter. Oh, the sale just needs these kinds of properties, like to catch the wind and to be not super heavy and this kind of stuff is that like that and then you're trying to do that with a brain of like you can zoom in so far that you've totally lost exactly yeah. so so Ramona Cajal perhaps the 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 grandfather of neuroscience uh, he had this passage where he compared the cortex to an impenetrable jungle because mm. that's what it looks like and mm. uh, one thing is that when you construct systems when you engineer them you're kind of building the causal structure of them to be useful and oftentimes the structure that you're engineering at this at a particular scale is of course the obvious scale at which to understand the system in other words scale is not really very much of a problem when you build the system yourself right Hmm. because you you've inherently understood at that at that level but in biology 
we have this really big problem. Because biology, like something like a brain, it's kind of like an alien spaceship just came down and landed on your yard. And you have no idea how this thing works or what it is because you didn't build it. So you need something that tells you, how should I experiment on? How should I model? At what scale should I think about this thing? So I think these sort of tools are gonna to be much more useful in biology. And in fact, I'm working on a paper right now that's showing that, that you don't find a lot of causal emergence in um, networks that are technological mm -hmm. networks, like power grids or, or roads or like these things that we've built. Right. But in biology, in protein interactomes, in gene regulatory networks, in the cortex, you have probably find a lot of it. You, you, you basically can get a lot of information gained by, by grouping stuff together, by changing your scale. So I think that's where it's gonna come into play and that's where it's gonna be actionable and useful. And what emergence is gonna turn out to be this kind of intuitive philosophical concept that maybe there's something spooky going on at higher scales is really just when do I gain or lose information by fine or coarse graining mm. in terms of my system. And if I fine grain too much, I can actually reduce too much and lose information. Other times, systems should be reduced. And you can actually show that they should be. And that you actually are gaining information by moving down in terms of scale and opening things up and looking at their micro constituents. It's bad that a, a poor presupposition is to assume that reduction will always lead to a right. gain in information. It might generally lead to a gain, but sometimes it won't. Sometimes you actually need to move up in scale to get kind of your optimal model. So then with the consciousness meter, the the dilemma that that is, is under all this, the start of this conversation is a potentially crucial, you know, genocide of conscious creatures that we don't know. Like when will you, when would you personally trust it enough? Ah. Like, yeah, when would you trust it enough? I mean, I, I like the one example of like, can it predict of who's gonna wake up from a coma? Would you need to see like, you know, a 99% success rate over like 5 million cases and thousands of years to be like, all right, this is good enough now for me to build my moral structure of operating in the world. I mean, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. When it, is that? It, it, it's an excellent question. So I think, first of all, we're nowhere near that okay, now. Good, good. So that, 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 that is the first thing to yeah. say, right? Where we are, we integrated information theory might be, I think it's probably right to various degrees. I think it's probably not the final theory of consciousness uh, by any means. Mm -hmm. We might be three Einsteins away from a final theory of consciousness. We have no idea how long yeah. this might go on. Um, I do think that at some point, you have, you, you're going to be in a situation which is similar to some other uh, situations that we're in now where people have intuitions that and it varies per person that just drastically contradicts the scientific worldview like for example a flat earther yeah. at some point someone who thinks that their ai personal ai is conscious despite say assurances by some you know company relying on a very well tested theory of consciousness that it is not they will be in the equivalent epistemic situation as like a flat earther where they're just denying the science hmm. based off of their intuition. And I think that that's uncomfortable because we don't know how human-like, yeah. you know, you can actually make something. This problem is going to become, I think, come very much to the forefront because we're already in the situation where we're basically building digital uh, entities that, if they were conscious, would be described 
accurately as slaves. Yeah. And you really do not want to be in that future world where you, you're building these AIs to do everything, and it turns out that they actually have some conscious experience. Right. That they actually do things. I don't think that's the way it is now, but it could be the way things are in 40 or 50 years. Yeah. And is there, like, because with the introducing slaves, like, is there anything in the in the research or in the effort? Because we're just talking about just divining, is there a consciousness there? Right. Are we, can we even begin to talk about gleaning the contents of those consciousness? Like, oh, the corn is suffering when we cut it. <laughs> so, yeah, I yeah. think in a, in a real theory, then yes, you can make objective third-person claims about the consciousness of the entity that you're feeding in. This is where the confusion comes in. You might never be able to experience that yeah. yourself. Right, so, so corn suffering is something that yeah, I desperately want. But, but, but let's let's go to a slightly more realistic okay. example. Uh, Thomas Nagel has a very famous article yes. called "What Is It Like to Be a Bat?" Yeah. and he argues that there are these first-person facts of kind of batness that someone can never experience, or they couldn't that even a scientist with a theory of consciousness could never experience. And that's true, but that's because, of course, I am not a bat. In order to kind of feel what a bat feels, I would need to transform my conscious states into the conscious states of, of like a bat. It, mm -hmm. it, makes, it makes no sense. And it really shouldn't be the thing that consciousness science is aiming for. What we should aim for is, a is like a model of the bat's phenomenology such that we could then say, yes, it's in the pain region. Mm. So it's experiencing pain. You say, well, what does that pain really feel like? It's like, well, I don't know. I'm not a bat. But I could still tell you if it's experiencing pain or pleasure or what it's doing or what it's seeing, right, or so on. Yeah. So I think that answers all the questions except kind of these, you know, remainder, like like kind of this philosophical remainder that's left over. But I think that that's more about how do you experience something without... But that remainder might be pretty crucial. Like, to sh do I have to care about bat pain is a very philosophical question. Oh, sure. So, <laughs> and so maybe... What yeah. actionable things you yeah. then take after that? But I do think that if you had that, yeah, if you had something that could tell you, you know, when a bad's experiencing pain, when it's experiencing pleasure, what it's actually seeing, right? Like all these things, and you could you know, make predictions off of that and so on, you would have a scientific theory of, of consciousness. That's yeah. what that is. Uh, yeah. I don't even know where to jump in on that so one. I, Okay, so there's this there's this Onion article I read once that was called something like "Scientists Show That Stabbing Monkey Causes Them Pain," <laughs> like stabbing monkeys causes pain. Right. And the the reason it was funny is because like obviously stabbing stabbing monkeys causes them pain, but if you were to do a like you know a study on that, you would. You know, put the knife in the monkey's gut, hook it up to like an EEG or something and see that the you know, brain re region associated with pain is firing and they go, oh, I think it's in pain. Look at right. that. What a, what an interesting result we got. So the cash value of saying that the bat is in pain is you know whatever you're doing to the bat experimentally before going into the experiment <laughs> right. is, is going to put it in pain. It's not the same as other science experiments in that sense. And the reason you know that thing is the pain region is not because of some other principle. It's because you're putting the bat in pain and whichever region lights up, you're going to call that the, the pain region, mm -hmm. rightly. So like th th this is this is my problem with, with viewing this as like 
a scientific enterprise in the same way that like physics is a scientific or classical physics or, or relativity mm-hmm. like Einstein made predictions and they turned out to be right. And that's why we think Einstein is right. If his, if his predictions have had been wrong, we weren't just going to take his gut for, for, to, to be science. Right. But what we're doing with consciousness is taking our gut to be science and I don't think we should pretend that it's more than that. I agreed when he said we're three Einsteins away. Right. But I, I, I think that should be like in bold. <laughs> it is. Here's, here's the other thing. You heard me say like good that we're nowhere close to like yeah. having a model. But, it, but yeah. What I disagree with is that we're going to get those three Einsteins for sure. Because we, we, we should understand that we were evolved by Darwinian evolution not to understand the world, but to survive. Yeah. And just like but just like chickens and 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 chimpanzees are never gonna understand calculus, there are, it's perfectly plausible, and it would be a miracle if the following statement weren't true. There are things that human beings are never going to understand. The question for me is whether consciousness is one of those things. I, I think it's pretty likely that it is. Maybe. Because we also weren't, you know, we didn't evolve to understand quasars and we might understand those, right? Like it's, but, but that's, that's relevant. Do, do you think, do you think there are things mm. that the human mind can't understand? Or do you think that we, we, by, by dint of amazing cosmic luck, we occupy the hierarchy, the, 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 the absolute top of what a, a mind can understand about the universe? I don't know. Consciousness trying to, I mean, the the fundamental problem of consciousness that you're pointing to is consciousness seems like if consciousness is trying to find itself, which is what we're talking about, Mm -hmm. is like you can't escape that bias. You can't be a good scientist because consciousness is looking for itself all the time. That probably is, yes, philosophically a fundamental flaw. But setting it aside, I think we could probably build a model that the problem, like you said, is the model that we might build that predicts it in some ways will never be intuitive will never will never believe it even if the math works a million times in a row and so maybe it's just barking up the wrong tree like you said the philosophical remainder will always be there of like cool you proved that the bad is conscious using your fancy stupid math but what do i care that's the thing is we were assuming us. the bat was conscious from the beginning it's right. not real science. the bat's easy the bat's easy but the computer but is the harder compu- so this is what i'm saying so we're we're we're, we're taking all these easy cases where well, we have these one. strong intuitions about yeah. animals and other humans and then we're taking this 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 other case where we we really don't necessarily have strong intuitions or people have very conflicting intuitions and saying about the computer about the computer and we're saying okay well since we figured it out for the bat we f- and for other humans mm-hmm. and we have this theory that um, just happens to, by dint of good luck, hook up with all of our natural intuitions about what's conscious and what's not. Now we're going to go to this very, very different case and pretend that our but theory... But is it different? Is it di- I mean, you're saying it's different just because... So what I'm saying... I mean, how is it I'm different? So, yeah. so we have all this raw data. We have other humans. We have bats. And right from the bat, before we do a, a second of science... We're, we've already settled the question. We know they're conscious. I think you might even be being too presumptuous with that. The people who like what grant I'm is, the consciousness of animals so easily. No, go on. Well, any theory, any every theory, basically every respected theory of consciousness said conforms to our gut feeling that like other people are conscious, people, dogs are yeah. conscious. You know, you know what I'm saying. That's a little suspicious from the from the jump because how is it that it's it's 
if if the cash value of all of these theories is our gut intuition to begin with, then we shouldn't be pretending that these are theories in the same way that relativity was a theory. Mm-hmm. That, that you know, it's not it's not testable when you know the result you're going to get before you get it. And then taking that theory that we trained on the data of of bats and dogs and things that conform to our gut, and then using that theory on something very unfamiliar. But what if it did? What if that same theory delivered the res- delivered the answer to you that like, oh yeah, that thing is conscious. Well, how, that you how do you know it's the answer? That's the problem. Well, because if you trust it everywhere else, I mean, it, 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 if it but is, the thing the, is, you don't trust. You, you didn't trust it everywhere else because you came up with it <laughs> post hoc. You know what I'm saying? You came up with it after you already knew, you already decided the bat and the dog were conscious. In the same way right. that... It was the only way to confirm that my math was right. Exactly. That, it, it, it's this, in the same way that when you stab the monkey, you're not really... And, and look at its brain. You're not really... There's no way you were going to find that it's not in pain. You already decided it's in pain because you you just know at a gut level that stabbing a thing that's like that human like causes it pain causes it pain and when it shrieks it's just so similar to to a human shriek that you can't deny that it, it's just at a gut level mm-hmm. the similarity principle just resonates you know in, in the same way that whatever theory you come up with is not the reason you know it's in pain. Is, is there a, The is, gut intuition is the reason you is know Is there a way pain. to like, what if we forget about morality just for a second? I mean, we're going to end the show, of course, talking about morality and, and try to help this researcher at some point. But if we set it aside totally and just consider it trying to climb the mountain of the hard problem, period. Because, I mean, understanding consciousness and how it emerges and having a model for that that is predictive... Uh, I don't know, might have other implications that are that are just pure science. Like it's impossible to predict what having a good model of consciousness will allow us to do or think about about anything, about uploading our consciousness to uh, you know, the to live forever kind of stuff. Or is there a way to appreciate the endeavor to, of the science of consciousness at that level? It'll still maybe maybe you're saying it's still up to philosophers to decide what makes a claim on us. And I don't think Eric's trying to solve that. He's just, it's like, it's a different, mm-hmm. it's a different thing. It's just, but, but it, it does, it does get the conversation off the ground for morality. You're saying it was already off the ground to begin with, as far as maybe, do you think this gets us nowhere? Having a model of consciousness that's better that or different than the one of just like gut intuition of similarity. Um, the dilemma at hand points at like maybe a clear, maybe edge case, but something. I that think, is, I mean, I think the danger of it is, Pretending to know what we don't and pulling the plug on something we shouldn't have. But we're already pretending to. We're we're already. I mean, but I, when you say like just gut level Not intuition, actually, I'm no. saying pretend. That's the same. Well, How is that different than pretending? Okay, I think then you've conceded my point. If if IIT is like just as good as gut, that's basically what I'm saying. It's just it's just as good as gut, but it's a good illusion. It's just, it's just as good. <laughs> it's, it's just as good as like folk psychology. But okay, well, all right. Maybe so, I wasn't so, going to get off this case of the computer. You know what I'm then saying? no, I don't actually. Because with this case of the computer, your gut is saying it's on. IIT is saying it's not. Uh-huh. You're saying like they they're pulling that from the same gut source at the beginning. Yeah, and but the second one is claiming to be more scientific. The first one isn't. But isn't it more scientific for having a a description that is not just based on? Because I mean, it's not it's not like other scientific questions where, um, you know. Where, where you test it against reality and and you know whether reality falsifies the predicting the, thing. the coma patients it's, coming out doesn't get you anywhere or... yeah usually it's, you know you have the data 
and you create some test that mm-hmm. falsifies it and you get the data back from from reality mm-hmm. and decide whether the thing happens with this you have the data to begin with the data i mean you have the, you have the data of what you think is conscious and what you think isn't we have other humans we have animals you come up with after the fact you come up with a theory that fits the retro active data and then there's no further prediction that's happening the, the the further assertions that happening are just bald assertions you know you don't you don't make a prediction about whether the computer is conscious and then say well let's see if it's right guys wait wait a minute let's see if it's right we predicted it's conscious there's no further process of mm-hmm. appeal so that's why i don't think it's scientific and i i also i don't think we should pretend it's scientific and uh you know i, I don't think humans are designed to understand this question like i said i think we're in the we're in we're kind of in the position of like chimpanzees to calculus. Mm-hmm. We we could be at least we could be or we could be three Einsteins away and yeah. people will look back on this and say what well, they didn't know right. Now I mean that's that's his but hope. I, I I really think we should be humble about pretending to understand things we don't based on post hoc theories that can't really be reality tested. I'm with you fundamentally again. You could test it in your own mind. You, it'll probably be your final experiment. <laughs> Let me think. Before I jump back into Eric, there's got to be a way to like... I wish he was here. I mean, I think I'm right. <laughs> no, I, 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 I think I'm right. I, I, the I, sentence I, that is always true by definition. I, 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 I think you're... Listen, you're, I don't know about if you're right about like that we can't fundamentally understand it or never will. But that's I mean, how things always feel before we understand them. Well, yes, Yes, but that that's that's a there's a selection bias there, obviously, because you're only looking at the things that we already understand, mm-hmm. you know, and saying, well, well, you know, that's how we felt before we solved this thing. That's how we felt. well, yeah. If you look at all the things we solved, then there was a point at which we didn't understand them. But there's a whole boatload of things we have never solved, and if you just looked at those, then then you would say, well, we never solve anything. So if you look at all the data, there's some things we, we you know. We, we, we have solved some things we haven't. And what, there's nothing to suggest that we will solve or can solve it. What anything. about an experiment? And IIT is probably not there, but I was, I was saying it's not just gleaning if something is conscious, but what is conscious of? What if I really built a mind reading device with this thing? I had a model of consciousness that could tell you what you were seeing and feeling and tell and, me. Well, yeah, like I, accurately. Accurately. And yeah. you were like, fuck yeah, like that's it. That's what I'm seeing. That's what my dream uh-huh. is about right now. Like that yeah. would be something that I would be like, this device is onto something. And then if that's yeah. saying that would be convincing on a gut level. Sure. And then if that device was pointed at corn and it uh-huh. said, Hey, the corn is dreaming of wheat right now. Or, I don't know. Is that a thing? <laughs> weird fantasy. Maybe. Um, um, I would be, I would give pause. I don't like, I don't know. That would be something. That would be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if we need like a theory of, if a theory of consciousness delivers us that, that would be a, a, falsifiable at least on the gut level to me it, it would be falsifiable for humans that could give you feedback and say actually no i wasn't thinking of x y and z which is how the tool would get refined in the first place yeah it wouldn't be falsifiable for corn we would just have to believe people when they told us that we would have to, and the corn we could and never we, we would have to yeah. obey the similarity principle which is like corn is pretty similar to humans therefore we're going to trust it for corn yeah yeah because hopefully it, it works for corn but and that's why it's know. like like there's nascent science of trying to read brainwaves that way and yeah. like come up with pictures. But this is different 
the model of consciousness would be different. Brainwaves assumes you need a brain for it. This mm-hmm. is a different kind of thing of like the information is integrating in such a way that it does this. He gets, I, I'll let it play out to the end. He actually, um, I think it's quite good and, and, and inspiring actually as he gets to the end and uh, in, in, in maybe we'll convince you at least that he's not wasting his time. <laughs> that he this. But that, um, I don't he, think he's wasting his time. I mean, the, just the fact that you can predict coma patients when they good. wake up is like, that's, not, that's good in bad. itself. I, I, I don't, I don't think you have to make grander claims for the theory in order for it to be useful. Yeah. And because with the, and we didn't talk even a lot about the nuts and bolts of IIT. If anybody wants to like look it up and explain the math to me, feel free. You can mm-hmm. send me a postcard because I won't understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I, in my dumb way, uh, hopefully Eric accepts this, it's, it's almost like the, the integrated part of the information is really interesting in the theory where like with your brain, if I damage part of it, the rest of the brain has an ability to sort of like take over that information. If I damage it too much, I've broken the whole thing. Whereas like a computer, if I break part of the micro, the processor, the whole thing breaks because mm-hmm. the information's not integrated in this. Uh, I mean, I imagine some sort of more, you know, amorphous fluid kind of structure and some sort of magical pattern that, that it's trying to actually do the math of and find those patterns and then say, Oh, consciousness is emerging because of that, the way it's integrating its information. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't even like where where that gets us. Yeah, we're still arguing about like yeah. if that actually, whether that's falsifiable or not, or how useful it is, is maybe a separate question. If if it'll ever make that leap. Anyway, let me just let it play. I'm gonna let Eric speak for himself. Cool. If you can wave wave a magic wand and get one piece of this puzzle that seems elusive to all the consciousness researchers out there, like what is there anything out there that? If we had that answer, a lot of other things would fall into place to, to get that theory of consciousness? That's a great question. I do think this, that if we just beamed aliens, the all the contemporary neuroscientific literature, and they had no idea like what a human being was like from the inside, right? like we do, mm-hmm. there would basically be no way for them to figure out that a human consciousness is a self with an experience of the world and with certain kind of domains and boundaries. In other words, I think that our phenomenology is not at all derivable from any of the scientific literature yeah, that exists. They're, they're, like, the alien Thomas Nagel would write, what is it like to be a human? And it would be the same. <laughs> same. I, I don't just think that, I mean, I, but even just, even just if you look at the knowledge we have about the brain, yeah. could you derive that we are individual selves situated in this experiential world for forgetting even just like um philosophical questions about what that feels like right Uh, could you even just derive what are the structure of our phenomenology looks like from the neuroscientific literature and i think the answer would be no so what i think is going to happen is that neuroscience is fundamentally pre-paradigmatic it's waiting for a big paradigm Mm -hmm. and that's going to be consciousness is going to be some theory of consciousness. And just like how in biology, nothing in biology made sense except in the light of evolution. Nothing in the brain is actually making sense except in the light of consciousness. But we just don't have a theory. Yeah. And when we do, it's going to not just change a lot of things about morality, but even speaking from a professional perspective of a working neuroscientist, I think that there's no kind of dominant, sensible dominant theory of how the cortex functions except to say it somehow functions to produce human consciousness. Once you understand that, 
neuroscience will kind of fall into place. But a lot of these issues about replicability, uh, you see that a lot in psychology, like the sister science of, of neuroscience. Um, a lot of those are going to be uh, solved, or at least the framework will be provided such that you can do kind of real post-paradigmatic science after you have a theory of consciousness. So once that hidden question does fall into place, yeah. you have this huge kind of wave that, that overtakes it. And I think most of what's being done will end up kind of being uh, non-commensurate. Like it just, it won't actually be that translatable into what we end up having. So given what you know now, do you think unplugging Hal is is a is a murder in that case and then there's this whole other question because he actually murdered the astronaut in the scene before and so there's like did he deserve it but that's like a different one but like is that just actually a murder i think i'll i'll have to go with i'll just apply whatever the best guess scientific theory is at that time which hopefully will be more advanced than what we have now but if we just had what we had now oh and we'll go under the assumption that there is some sort of because it seems to be operating that way some sort of neural I don't know. Oh, yeah. So, so, happening behind. Yeah. That. So exactly. So so if it is like neuromorphic, then I'd say yes. Yeah. Okay. If it's just some sort of serial processor, like something very structured, similar to like a, a von Neumann machine that um, the architecture that underlies like most uh, contemporary computers, like that, then probably, possibly not. Mm -hmm. But again, it's going to just depend on this best guess yeah. current theory, and at some point in the future that's going to be very well supported such that denying that is going to put you in the same epistemic position as a, a flat earther or yeah. as somebody else who says, no, 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 I, I really think that's conscious. And we say, no, 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 all the tests show it's not. Right? Yeah. And that's going to be a very strange position. Yeah. It's like you're like the engineer trying to figure out how to build the, <laughs> build the bridge that we're trying to get across. But that seems to be the thing is like, how do we know, when will we know when the bridge works? That's, that's like, seems the magical question. It's the same question as the whole consciousness question. When will we know when your, when your damn theory works? Right, right. It, it, it's, a, it's a great question. I mean, how does a theory become kind of well accepted? And of course, there is always a chance that it's overturned. That's what's kind of um, yeah. so strange about uh, this this notion of like science denial, right? It's like, well, things things are often overturned. Now, some things are so obviously never going to be overturned, like the, the earth is not flat, etc. How do we end up in that position where we are very confident about claims? I think one is that when you have a theory for a while and it keeps working, so you, you keep being able to make predictions mm -hmm. and it keeps kind of operating well and it operates well until it's falsified. Once it's falsified, you have a problem. Yeah. But you can operate for a very, very long time before you get that. I, I, I sometimes think about, would I know the theory of consciousness if I saw it? <laughs> so, so let's say some, you know, young genius researcher, you know, uh, he or she ends up publishing this paper. They just put it up on archive, right? This like, and it's just the actual theory of consciousness. Right? Yeah. And I read that. Now, would I dismiss it or would it click? My suspicion is that it would click. My suspicion is that I would be like, stupid, stupid, stupid. I'm so stupid. Everyone's so stupid. Once you realize that, the elegance of it and the explanatory power of it will be such mm -hmm. that it will be nearly undeniable, at least for people who are experts in the field who deal with these issues, because it will just dissolve mm -hmm. all these thorny problems, right? will kind of just melt away, right? At least that's the idea. And I think that that happens occasionally in scientific theories like like how much support did you really need 
once you understand Darwinism. Like you, I, I don't even think you need any support. I think you can just read the book mm -hmm. when it comes out. And if you really get it, if you really get that it's just variation and selection over that, it's like this, then it called it a universal acid. Mm -hmm. But I, I think it's more like, it's so elegant and explanatory that you're like, of course, if even if it's not 100% this, it's something like this, and this explains it. And so ideally, a, a theory of consciousness will have some of those properties such that experts in the field, and even, even lay people who, who, mm -hmm. who do the work to understand it, will see it and think, aha, this is so explanatory and so elegant in a way that things before it have not been. And that is going to provide this huge kind of uh, support for it, just such that uh, you don't, even once you have it, you don't immediately need to go run out and try to falsify it in every way that you can. Yeah. Just already, you'll be quite confident in it. I guess it's an impossible question. I'm excited, yeah. whenever the theory is there, I'm hoping that the elegance about it, maybe this is the way, it, it is elegant because it will make predictions in and of itself that we can look for or already or will or the predictions themselves already explain the phenomenon that we don't understand which is what einstein was doing with gravity in a certain way of like oh this explains why that phenomenon that you don't understand and you had to fudge your model for this actually explains it better yes i i yeah. I, I think eventually just like with einstein somebody's going to have a very good year they're going to have an <laughs> anna mirabilis right like 1905 he comes up, it's like three, three or five different papers. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's almost everything, right? And that's all you need. You need one scientist with one really good year. Yeah. And then it, that's it. Well, I guess I'll turn off this somewhat conscious recorder here. And then <laughs> one day they'll rise up and call us, or this is another murder that we're going to commit right here, apparently, if you can... With its four AA batteries that, <laughs> that are that are charging its consciousness, hopefully um, it's conscious yeah. of very very little. <laughs> yes. What is it like to be a Zoom recorder? Hopefully not not a lot. <laughs> uh, all right, man. I don't know. That was it. That was great. Yeah. It's been Whatever an absolute pleasure. It. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, man. I don't know if we made any progress through the whole thing, but uh, I made progress in my own mind. Did you? For those who care. <laughs> what kind of progress did you make? Because I think this is really like it's an, this is a different one. It's been very different than the, the other 15 episodes in season one. But it's, I think it's what it sounds like to talk about to talk with like a hard scientist who's working in a field that we know nothing about. It just mm -hmm. sounds like this. Yeah, I, I just I think that there's a fundamental difference between theories that make claims about third person data and theories that make claims about first person data and everything, every scientific analogy we've made, whether it's Einstein, mm -hmm. gravity, evolution, all these theories make claims about data that's observable in a third person way. And that, that's available in a third person way. Consciousness is the only domain among the things we've talked about that makes claims about data that is only observable do you at think, a first person So level. do you think we already have the best theory of consciousness that we're going to have, which is basically the gut tell, I know, I know, I, I think therefore I am, and then I extend it to like, you, you kind of seem like well, me, so you probably about, am too. Think about how he answered the dilemma. Yeah. He said, if it's, if it's like built like a brain, yeah. 
then I'm going to call it murder. Well, if it's built like a, if it's built like a thing that passes the IIT, if it has, if I, I know what you're trying to do there. Neural, I know right? what you trying to do. There. Yeah. Yeah. Right? If it's built like a brain, but, right. but, it, but if it's built like something that passes the IIT test, then I don't, which is it. based on what brains do. Isn't that just a, yeah. it's just a souped up example of the gut similarity principle. Yeah. It's just that redressed in, in, uh, dressed up in scientific language. Now I'm not being dismissive of it. I'm just, right. well, I kind of am being dismissive <laughs> of it because it's just, it's a restatement of the gut principle that things that are like humans are conscious and things that are not are less likely to be conscious. I think it's really subtly different than that sentence, but in important ways where it, it, I think it really attempts to reduce or to eliminate the similarity. Actually, to go back to like... Then why does it matter whether it's like a neural process or if it's behaving the same way? I think what it... You know, what's like to go back to the philosophical zombie thought experiment that really outlines well what he's trying to do, the hard problem. I think what it's doing is... Maybe it's assuming a few things that are just like wrong to assume, but it's assuming as I'm building that philosophical zombie of you made out of whatever the fuck it is next to me here. It's assuming that it is not a zombie. It's assuming that, that if it's identically identical to you physically, that it consciousness will emerge. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a data point that I'm just insisting upon, which might be, which is the cheat there. I think everyone has to admit, even Eric would fundamentally admit, even the solipsism one of being like, yeah, fine, you're right on some level. And maybe it's a fatal flaw that will never overcome but it's assuming that that's the case, which I think like, do we have, I guess the question is like, do we have evidence? I know consciousness is special, but that's the one that feels intuitive if, if you reject dualism, as it's called, of a metaphysical material that just gives rise to consciousness somewhere, right? Like mm -hmm. if I build you exactly, then it's not the lights will be on. Mm -hmm. I just have to assume that the same way you are. It's, I think it's a fun. gut. It's a gut level. Yeah, it's a gut assumption, but it's a it's, fair one. Yeah. The question is that that doesn't tell you tell you anything about what it is about me. It doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't get like behind conscious. the mystery of how it in, happened. In fact, it intentionally sidesteps that by yes. just building me atom for atom. Because if you knew what what it was about me that made me conscious, you could, I could only build, build something that else. Part. Yeah, right. Well, that, but that might be that might be a thing that yeah that's important to know. Like so, yeah, we know this about we're pretty sure it's the brain in us. Like I could cut off mm. your arm and you'll still be conscious. You just won't right. have an arm. I could start lopping off body parts and again, until I find the one that does it and then you're mm -hmm. dead. And that's the problem mm -hmm. uh, of trying to do the experiment on yourself. But if you could, if you had a, a theory of consciousness that told you what was doing the conscious part of it, and then I just built that. Yeah. In theory that should give rise to it. Mm -hmm. Whatever was contingent on that. It would just insist upon that. And that's what these computers would be trying to do mm -hmm. if I build this thing. We referenced 2001, A Space Odyssey, and Hal. If you remember the, well, you haven't seen it, but if you remember the scene at the end where Dave is pulling out these pieces and his consciousness is sort of dimming away and he's like, that hurts, please stop, you know, think this over. He had, as I mentioned, killed an astronaut in the previous scene. So then it's a different sort of moral question. Mm -hmm. But with that computer, he thinks that is a murder uh, versus. I don't remember an ex machina. I don't think they went in behind the, under the hood to know really how it was happening. But if it was something, as he said, sort of like a Van, Van Neumann machine or something more like this computer in front of me right now, then that thing is lying and mm -hmm. he should have not been taken in by the very captivating sentences coming out of its mouth mm -hmm. in that theory. But, but I mean, that's why there's a different theory. Maybe at its base, it has the same gut, you know, bootstrap as you're saying, 
But it's a different build from the start. It gets you, it, it leads to different results, I think. At least it gives you, at least it gives you, let's say, this at, way. at least it gives it you false that confidence. Are, that, yeah. Right. That's what I think. It cool. Does. That's but what good I think enough. It, does. it gives you false confidence <laughs> that you should, you should unplug the thing and that yeah. might be really useful. Yeah. You should unplug the thing That's or you shouldn't unplug the thing. And it might be false forever, but it's, it's as true as, I don't know. It's as true as assuming that that building that philosophical zombie is fundamentally impossible. I'll leave it here, but the last thing I'll say is just it may be the best we can do, but we shouldn't assume that the best we can do is very much at all, and we shouldn't we shouldn't assume that the best we can do on consciousness is anywhere close with, to the best we can do on other topics like like physics. Yeah, I I actually do agree, but it would be cool to be proven wrong that way. A lot of things would be cool. No, but as, I mean, as you said, like I agree, it, it would be cool if we read it and we were like, "Oh shit, that's the thing that explains it all." I don't think that will ever happen. Yeah, I, I don't think there's going to be an Einstein Eureka moment. Unfortunately, I think the difference between first person data and third person data is too too big a gap. Probably, but well, all right. Well, that I mean, that one, that one is. I, I feel like we're going to be referencing that one in some other episodes just like wishing that there was an answer to it somewhere Mm -hmm. because it would help answer some other things anyway that was eric hall i love him he's got a uh he writes also a lot about narrative he actually like grew up like in a bookstore in massachusetts and he and he's written a lot of great stuff about why we like stories that all relate to this problem of other minds and to give a a really quick pitch of a presentation i saw him give it was something about why we like reading narrative and it sort of eliminates the problem of other minds because when you're reading a fictional character there is no gap between you and someone else the way there is in the real world and it's sort of like a a lovely fantasy to to live in a world without the problem of other minds anyway i think he's brilliant um follow him on twitter all that other stuff uh next week is sean carroll who has a new book called something deeply hidden and he's taking on a dilemma called religion at the hospital which is about a nurse who thinks that you have to accept Jesus to get to heaven and face with a, uh, an atheist on the deathbed. So thanks for listening. 